Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good to see you all. Thanks so much for joining us. As the voice of God partially said, I am Jay Richards. I'm the director of the DeVos Center uh, here at the Heritage Foundation. And it is my delight and privilege to welcome you both in person and online to our Life After Roe Symposium. Uh, Though we're here at the Heritage Foundation, this is co-sponsored and co-organized with our friends at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and Americans United for Life. Uh, They've been indispensable partners uh, every step along the way, and we're delighted to be able to do this. And we had planned this to happen before the Dobbs decision came out, and it looks like we actually planned properly. So uh, we actually wondered that for uh, a few weeks. So I'd I'd love to just very briefly introduce you to our first panel, which are the, the principal of our three organizations. The first, Dr. Kevin Roberts, is the the fairly new president of the Heritage Foundation, and he was previously the chief executive officer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is the largest state public policy organization. He was also the president at one time prior to that of Wyoming Catholic College, and he has a PhD in American history from the University of Texas. Joining him on stage is going to be Ryan Anderson, who is the new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ryan is a friend, and in fact, Ryan was previously here at the Heritage Foundation as a senior research fellow, in fact, my predecessor in in my current position. He's also the editor and founder of The Public Discourse, which is the publication um, of the Witherspoon Institute. He has a BA from Princeton University and a PhD in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. And finally, Catherine Glenn Foster. Catherine serves as the president and CEO of Americans United for Life. She spent seven years uh, alliance defending freedom, defending life in local appellate uh, and federal courts, defending life at all all stages of development, and also led ADS efforts uh, in the areas of euthanasia, assisted suicide, excellence in care, and related topics. Catherine earned her JD from the George, Georgetown University Law Center, and it is my privilege to introduce them for our first panel. Please join me in welcoming them. Thanks, Jay, and welcome to all of you. So we'll have a, a brief discussion after some comments, especially from Catherine and Ryan. But Catherine, I think you're up first. Excellent. Um, You know, in our line of work, um, we meet so many people, and they entrust their stories to us, Um, stories of heartbreak, stories of hope. And and it really impresses upon me how powerful stories are. And that really is why I get up in the morning, is because of stories, is because of the 62 million-plus stories that were cut short, the stories that will never happen. Now, we know that Roe is going to fall. We know that that regime of legalized abortion, just because in 1973, seven Americans uh, imposed their beliefs on the rest of us and stripped away all the laws protecting the rest of us, um, we know that it's going to fall. For 50 years, legal scholars on both the right and the left have told us this. And we know that when it does, after Roe, states are going to have the ability to protect life at all stages of development. 
from fertilization through birth and all the way on. We know that lawmakers are going to be able to be held accountable for their beliefs and for what they do or what they don't do to protect human life. And we know that, um, that we need to encourage every state and every lawmaker to act. And even as we do that, we know that we as the pro-life movement um, are really going to have the responsibility to do that generational work of getting a constitutional amendment in place so that we will end this discussion and end um, the regime of legalized abortion once and for all. But before we can answer what's next, we have to take a look back at how we got to this pivotal point in history. Um, and it really has been law and policy that's led the way with hundreds of pro-life bills signed into law in just the last decade alone. And in fact, a USA Today and Arizona Republic project analyzed all those bills. They did the work and, um, and tried to figure out exactly what that language was in all those bills. And they determined that the bulk of those bills um, actually originated with Americans United for Life. So it's good to know that we have consistency from state to state across the movement. Um, but after Roe, saving every innocent human life and protecting all women from predatory abortion businesses, it suddenly moved into the realm of the possible. And then to be able to turn the possible to the actual, we have to flip the narrative and we have to, to start talking about all the ways that abortion has harmed women. Um, but not only that, we have to talk about all the incredible work of the pro-life movement over these last 50 years, um, how we rebuilt those protections for women that had been stripped away. Um, and we rebuilt them law by law, and we rebuilt them case by case. And we've gotten to the point where today a woman is only as likely to make that desperate decision as she was in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade came down. Now, as it was before Roe, some states, states like California, states like New York, they are going to keep pushing uh, for more and more abortions. Uh, we've seen that. We've seen the bills that they've introduced, um, sadly, even in the state where I live in Maryland. Um, you know, we've seen that the state is just trying so hard to run in the opposite direction uh, to strip away those protections even further, even beyond what Roe had provided for. Um, you know, they they pretend that they're safeguarding some sacred right and um, and think that they're that they're out, do, out there doing something wonderful for women um, when we know so much better than that. Um, but other states are going to be enabled to finally implement laws that protect children and protect women from those predatory practices. Um, they're going to be able to finally start enforcing those laws that have been enjoined by courts in some places for decades. And, uh, and they'll be able to enact new laws that protect women and children um, and provide help and support to women who are facing unexpected pregnancies. So after Roe, where abortion activists, they try to enshrine that so-called right to abortion, we need to be there even more than ever before, standing for women, standing for children, standing for life. And, um, and wherever they try to enshrine a right to abortion in state law or get it handed down from a state bench, we need to be there um, fighting back. And AUL and our, our partners in the pro-life movement are going to be there um, to stand for women. So what's next, briefly? Um, number one, state conditional laws. After Roe, after Roe Falls, um, we are going to see state AGs called upon to 
finally go in and be able to to enforce those conditional laws that in many cases have been in place for decades. So in a lot of jurisdictions, that'll begin with going into court and lifting those injunctions against those laws. Um, that's going to be absolutely critical. That's job one. Uh, number two, we're going to be looking at congressional actions. Um, on the national scene, just remember that after Roe, not only is there no longer a federal constitutional right to abortion, but um, but there isn't a whole lot on the subject at all. So there have, there have been a slew of statutes passed by Congress since Roe um, that prohibited taxpayer funding for elective abortion, um, that prohibited federal facilities from being used for elective abortions, but we can do so much more. And so not only will we be fighting back against the Women's Health Protection Act and, and similar types of legislation which have nothing to do with protection or, or health or anything good for women, um, not only will we be doing that kind of thing and fighting back against funding attempts and so on, but we're also going to be um, continuing to fight for life, for protections for life, for the Hyde Amendment to be um, made permanent, um, doing everything that we can to protect life um, and conscience and, uh, and protect our taxpayer dollars from being used for, um, for violence. Um, number three, we're going to be looking for democratic accountability um, because we need to think about the impact that Roe's overturn is going to have on national electoral policy. Every federal and state legislator will be directly accountable to the people who elected them for the decisions that they make and what they do to protect uh, or not human life. And that is going to be critical. It's going to be a very good thing for the American body politic. So we're looking forward to that. And then finally, four, we'll be moving towards abolition. We cannot accept halfway measures. We cannot, um, we cannot stop until every life is protected in America. And Americans don't want us to. Um, we're just seeing results where we see that a super majority of Americans, um, they believe that, that a, a child in the womb is a person at least as of the time of viability. Um, and even um, uh, about the same supermajority, an 80% supermajority, they want protections, legal protections for that child in the womb. And only 14% of Americans don't seem to realize that the child in the womb is a human being, is a person, until that child is born. So it is time once again to take up a constitutional amendment to ensure that all lives are finally protected. It's going to be a generational effort, but you know, barring any future resolution by the Supreme Court, we have to work together towards that amendment to clarify what common sense so far has not seemed to, that every human person has a fundamental legal and human right to life, and that abortion simply shall not exist in the United States of America. Thank you. Thanks so much, Catherine. Great comments. Dr. Ryan Anderson, I know you'll build on them. Great. Thank you. Um, and let me start by thanking both Kevin and Catherine uh, for Heritage and AUL co-sponsoring this event. It's, it's so awesome to see everything that AUL is doing on life. It's so great to have Heritage fully pro-life and leaning in to the pro-life issue. The entire uh, movement is in both of your debts. Um, and one other word of thank you, EPPC is a, a, a co-sponsor of this. That doesn't mean I actually did anything to co-sponsor this. Um, one of my colleagues did. So I want to thank Rachel Morrison, who really uh, spearheaded uh, today's event on, on the uh, part of EPPC. Um, I worked at Heritage for almost a decade, a wonderful, enjoyable decade. And whenever I'm back at 
uh, conjures up memories. And um, I can remember we used to live a block from here. And I can remember the first time I saw my son's face. Um, although I didn't know uh, it was his face. It was about four years ago, and it was a grainy ultrasound screen. And it wasn't until the ultrasound technician said, that's your baby's face, that I knew what end was the head and what end was the butt. And it was the first time seeing one of these things. And then the ultrasound technician said, that's the baby's heartbeat. And then when we went back, this was the 12-week ultrasound. We went back for the 20-week ultrasound. She identified every major body part. You know, this is the leg, the other leg, arm, arm. That's the head, the heart, the lung. She wants to make sure it's all there, right? Never once did she say fetal cardiac polar activity. Never once did she say fetus, right? We know what the, the entity in the womb is. It's not an alligator. It's not a chicken. It's not inorganic matter. It's an unborn human be being. Right. The past 50 years has been lying when, when the justices in the Roe opinion said, you know, we don't presume to answer the question of when human life begins. They did presume to know, and they said it wasn't until after birth. That's the implicit logic of Roe and of Casey. It was denying the reality that all of us can see with our plain eyes and that all of us celebrate when we are happy about it. Right? Many of the first pictures for some of you in the audience in your baby books is going to be that ultrasound picture. Many of the ways that our families first find out that there's a new grandson or granddaughter or a niece, a nephew, a cousin is with the ultrasound image texted to family members, which is why the most honest um, uh, pro-abortion advocates, they don't make the stupid arguments, it's a clump of cells, it's not a human being. They, they try to make a more sophisticated, or in my mind, a more sophistical argument and say, oh yeah, it's a human being, but it's not a human person. And any time in human history when we've denied personhood to a class of human beings, we've looked back and regretted it. Whether it was with our shameful legacy of slavery, denying personhood to people with the wrong skin color, whether it was uh, um, the terrible um, uh, Holocaust, denying personhood to people of the wrong ethnicity or religious background, we've always looked back in horror at doing it. And it's no difference with denying personhood to the unborn. Peter Singer makes one of the most sophisticated or, again, sophistical arguments like this. I was an undergrad at Princeton. You know, it's speciesism to value human beings in a way that you don't value animals. I live with a lot of animals. None of my animals have a personal nature. None of them. The reason we will sometimes speak of human beings as having disabilities, a cognitive disability, a developmental disability, is that there's something blocking the full flowering of the underlying nature, the personal nature. I don't expect any of my chickens or rabbits or sheep or goats to ever talk. I expect my newborn son to one day talk because I know his nature. And it's a human nature. It's a personal nature. He's made in the image and likeness of God. And what's true about my uh, son, the, the, the almost four-year-old who was, you know, four years ago, I saw the ultrasound image. He, he speaks. He won't shut up. He loves asking questions. I know one day our newborn will do the same. It's the unfolding of that nature. And all of that was true when they were in the womb. None of this is, uh, when we try to pass laws protecting these human beings, an illicit imposition of morality. You're legislating morality. You're imposing your religion on me. This is no more legislating morality or imposing religion than laws that ban adult homicide. Now, if the secularist doesn't have a good argument for why we should ban adult homicide, so much the worse for secularism, right? The burden's not on us to justify ourselves to the secularists. Whatever the argument is for why I can't kill Kevin and Catherine, it's the same argument for why I can't kill the unborn child. All right, why do I rehearse all of this? Um, in a week, maybe two weeks, um, we're going to have to persuade our neighbors about all of these truths 
to then enact laws, policies, regulations to protect these children, to protect these mothers. Um, I just talked about how abortion harms the unborn. Abortion harms everything it touches. It makes nothing better. Abortion is terrible for women. It's not empowering. Many women feel pressured into abortion. They don't want to shout their abortions. They regret their abortions. Uh, abortion is a risky physical procedure that has you know, immediate physical harms. Uh, it can have long-lasting spiritual and emotional harms. It's perpetuated for 50 years now an inhospitable culture, assuming the male body is the norm and that female bodies are somehow defective males. It's what my EPPC colleague um, uh, Erica Bakiaki refers to as asymmetrical reproduction. Human reproduction is asymmetrical. The male role and the female role are different. We've built an entire culture, an economic system, an education system, a society, assuming that my body type is the normal type, my wife's body type is somehow defective, and so we need to sterilize her body so she can compete in the marketplace and in the education system on equal footing. That's the lie behind Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that women need abortion in order to be equal, rather than saying we actually have to rethink some of our economic structures, our educational structures, our family life structures to actually respect the equal dignity of being embodied as male and being embodied as female. Um, abortion has been particularly devastating for people who are already on marginalized um, uh, communities in American life, already on the peripheries. Uh, look at lethal discrimination in the womb. Um, people who might uh, experience a physical disability aborted at elevated rates. There are millions of missing girls across the globe because of people lethally discriminating against uh, girls. It's more dangerous to be in the womb if you are black in New York City than to be born. More black babies are aborted in New York City than are born. And some of this might not just be happenstance. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenicist. The push for contraception and abortion was, in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words, because we, there were populations that we didn't want too many of. We can't deny um, the underlying realities of how abortion has harmed everything. I could go on, but I only have a few more minutes, so I'm, I'm not going to keep going. I, I've filled an entire book, uh, along with Alexander de Sanctis, on how abortion has harmed everything, has solved um, nothing. Um, and, and so, actually, Heritage is hosting an event for us in a week, so we'll, we'll be back to talk about that. I want to close on just one thought. I think the root of all heresies are forcing either ors when orthodoxy is a both and situation. I think the same thing, what's true in kind of the theological world is true in the political and legal world and is true for the pro-life movement. We need to resist as we move forward the false dichotomies. So people are going to say, is it about the states or the feds? Both and. We need good state laws and good federal legislation. There's a role for the federal government, both the executive agencies and Congress and the federal courts. This isn't the last a court case. There are other cases we should be bringing to protect unborn babies. There's a role for the states. Is it the culture or is it the law? It's both and. We need the pregnancy resource centers. We need the pro-life groups. We need the groups ministering to women who regret their abortions. We also need good laws and policy. Is it the supply side of abortion or the demand side of abortion? Both. The supply, Planned Parenthood. We have to shut it down. We have to shut down lethal violence in the womb. But also, there are reasons why people think they need abortion. Why is there a demand for this? We have to address that as well. And then last thing I'll say, is it about prohibiting abortion or is it about assisting mothers both and? Look at what Texas did. It's a great example. The heartbeat bill, they banned abortion after six weeks. They also allocated an additional $100 million for the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. The media covered the, the prior, they ignored the latter. Pro-lifers have been doing stuff like that. The Capitol Hill Crisis Pregnancy Center vandalized just a week ago. They've been quietly assisting mothers in need for decades. 
pro-life movement needs to keep doing it, keep doing what we've been doing, both and, on every false dichotomy, both and moving forward. Thanks, Ryan. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs>
there are a lot of people in America, and I'm hopeful people in this audience, in person, online, who disagree with us. And by that, I mean, we've got to get back to civil discourse in this country, including on this very difficult issue. You are perhaps the most eloquent when it comes to persuading people of a different mind to change their opinion. Give us some tips. I opened earlier with uh, with sharing my thoughts on the power of story very briefly. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I can go on for a long time on any topic. Um, but um, but for me, it really is about that. It's about um, when you're talking about persuading people, you need to um, to just sit next to them. You need to build a connection, build that bridge, find the commonalities. Um, maybe share a little bit of your background, but do more listening than talking, right? and just hear where they're coming from. And then once you hear that, once you hear their concerns, their objections, their experiences, because so many Americans have some kind of connection to abortion, right? Or to some kind of life issue. Maybe it's, maybe it's adoption. Maybe it's something that, that's on the periphery, but, but it's impacted by the abortion issue. And then once we hear that, then we know... Do we, we know in our hearts how to respond. Um, I think that's true when you're talking to a young woman or a young man in need. Um, you know, we need to find out what's the reason why they're in need. What's the reason why they're in this this crisis situation? We know that you know across the board, fertilization through third trimester, um, the primary reasons why women choose abortion or consider abortion. Um, they're pretty much the same, right? It's financial concerns, relationship issues, and not feeling ready to be a parent. All of those are areas where we can come alongside a woman, help her, um, stand with her, um, and with her partner, with that, that young man in her life. Uh, I was down in Florida um, last fall, I guess, and speaking at a pregnancy center, and I got to meet this man who, um, who runs the men's ministry there, and he had a background of abortion, and his heart was just so strong uh, for those young men, and he has an office right across from, from the ultrasound room, and, and for a few minutes before the ultrasound, a lot of times the, the woman is alone with the tech, right? They're getting her ready. They're using that time to just check on her, make sure it's not that relationship issue, right? Make sure that she's not being abused or coerced and, and try to, to check on her, right? And so he snags that young man in. He says, you know, just sit down on my couch for a minute. And he said that so often he sees the young man just, you know, just hunched over, just defeated, has no idea how to go on. Because for 50 years, he's been told that it's not his voice at all that matters. It's just a decision between a woman and her doctor. And really, the doctor's out of it now, too. Right. It's just a woman and a pill. Um, and so he says, let me talk to you. Let me talk to you about the role of manhood properly understood. And the young man will say, well, you don't care about me. You just care about the baby. And, and the man I spoke with, he said, no, I care about you because I know that if I, if I get to your heart, then you are going to lead that young woman in your life and you two will work together to save that baby and give that baby a loving home. And, um, and I just, I heard that story and that to me was the essence of what we do. It's coming alongside people, figuring out what they need. Um, and just responding to them. So that is the most persuasive argument, I think. It's not this one-sentence thing that's the same for everyone. If it were, I would publish it, we would all use it, we'd be done, right? Easy. Um, and it's not like that because it is a nuanced issue and people come at it from different backgrounds and perspectives and with different needs. And so I think we just need to be there for them, um, come alongside them in their moment of need, and um, and just respond to that. And that's how we change hearts and minds on the issue of abortion in America. 
Thank you. What a wonderful response. It, it, so it's not rocket science, but it is time consuming because doing this one by one is very difficult, right? So last question, Ryan, how do we scale that? I mean, you, you, by that, I mean, you're a philosopher. I would call you a social scientist because you're such a great researcher. You're a lot of things, all of them compliments. But how do, you, how do you scale that in the law or public policy or, for that matter, something you and I talk about a lot, rebuilding institutions? In other words, give us a charge. Give, give this audience some sense of action items in addition to the wonderful response Catherine just gave us. Uh, sure. I mean, I think um, we each have to ask ourselves, what is my vocation in life? And then whatever our given vocation, not everyone has the vocation that Catherine, Kevin, and I have. But whatever our vocation is, there's a way in which you can plug into the pro-life movement to make a difference. Right? And maybe it's volunteering at the local pregnancy resource center. Maybe it's making a lot of money and then donating it to the crisis pregnancy center or to Heritage or AUL. Maybe it's um, becoming a policy analyst. Maybe it's working on Capitol Hill. Maybe it's running for elected office. Maybe it's serving on the school board. I know the one good member of the Loudoun County School Board. Uh, he's making a difference. Unfortunately, he's always outvoted, but it matters. Right? And, and if we don't run for those seats, we can predict who will get those seats. Um, Maybe it's if you're a business leader, not having your company pay for the out-of-state abortions of your employees. I mean, there's a corporate role in all of this. Maybe if it's, you know, you're a business exec, not canceling pro-life books, not censoring pro-life voices on social media, which is simply to say th there's a role for everyone. Not everyone needs to do what the three of us do. I mean, you have to, you know, discern what your, you know, kind of vocation in life is and then figure out, given that vocation, how do I advance the culture of life? How do I build the culture of life? And there's a role for all of us. Uh, what we can't afford, when Kevin says, how do we scale up? We can't afford for anyone to be sitting on the sidelines. Everyone needs to be contributing. That's how we scale it up. Everyone figuring out my gifts, my talents, my opportunities, given where God's placed me in the world. What can I do to move the ball? And I don't have to go all the way to the goal line. Right? None of us on our own is going to, but I can take it to the next, the next yard marker, right? And then someone else takes it from there. And that's how we get to the ultimate objective, which is, as Catherine said, it's abolition of abortion. No lethal violence in the womb. Uh, that's the ultimate obje uh, uh, objective. Overturning Roe is just the first step. It's not the end of the pro-life movement. It's the beginning of, of a new phase of the pro-life movement. Uh, and I'm glad to have so many of you as allies in this fight. What wonderful encouragement. Please join me in thanking Dr. Ryan Anderson and Catherine Glenn Foster for being here. Wonderful panel. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. So I'm Roger Severino. I am the Vice President of Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. It's my pleasure to introduce this new panel on the legal ramifications of a post-Roe world. Yesterday, I actually had a dream about the decision, a dream pretty much only a lawyer could have. <laughs> I dreamt that Justice uh, Roberts signed a separate concurrence fully overturning Roe. So right now we think there are five votes to overturn it. God willing, my dream will come true and we have six votes fully overturning Roe. But when I was thinking, well, I'm having dreams, it reminded me of Dr. Martin Luther King when I was a kid, when I saw his I Have a Dream speech. And I looked it up again and one of his lines was he dreamt that all of God's children would be singing Let Freedom Ring. All of God's children. So may that dream become a reality. So it's my pleasure to introduce our legal expert panelists. First, we have Ed Whalen, who is a distinguished senior fellow at EPPC, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he holds EPPC's Antonin Scalia Chair 
in Constitutional Studies. Mr. Whalen directs its program on the Constitution, Courts, and Culture. His areas of expertise include constitutional law and the judicial confirmation process. He is co-editor of three volumes of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's work. He's a lawyer and former clerk to Justice Scalia and has served in positions at all three branches of the federal government, including the Office of Legal Counsel. He graduated with honors from Harvard College and received his JD magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. Next, we'll have Clark Forsyth, who's senior counsel at Americans United for Life, AUL, and is author of Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade. In more than three dec decades of service with AUL, he served as vice president and general counsel, overseeing its litigation legislation strategy and president for 10 years. He's argued before state and federal courts and testified before Congress and state legislatures. He has a BA in political science from Allegheny College, and a law degree from Valparaiso University, and an MA in bioethics from Trinity International University. Finally, we have Denise Harley, who's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, where she's director of the Center for Life. In this role, Ms. Harley leads her team's litigation and advocacy efforts to defend pro-life legislation around the nation. Since joining ADF, she took a leading role in the U.S. Supreme Court case of NIFLA versus Becerra, resulting in a free speech victory for California's pro-life pregnancy resource centers. She previously served as Deputy Solicitor General in the Office of the Florida Attorney General, has a bachelor's degree summa cum laude from Florida State University, master's degree in political science from Stanford University, and a JD from Duke University of Law. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, please. Well, thanks very much, Roger. Thanks to all of you for being here. We are apparently on the cusp of a uh, great achievement, the crowning achievement of the, of the conservative legal movement, overruling of opinions that epitomize the worst of judicial activism. Uh, Roe, written some 50 years ago, is a rambling opinion devoid of coherent legal analysis. It overrode the laws of all 50 states and created a radical abortion regime that has corrupted uh, American politics and culture ever since. Casey, 30 years ago, when I was a law clerk for Justice Scalia, uh, was a uh, first clear opportunity for the court to correct its error in Roe. The court badly botched that. And here we are, um, as I say, uh, with the, uh, on the cusp of um, this wonderful achievement. Now, I don't want to take for granted that we will um, have uh, a, a ruling overturning uh, Roe and Casey, but I will say that Justice Alito's uh, draft opinion that was leaked is a masterful uh, document. Uh, there have been lots of criticisms of it um, from, from, from the left. They range from the insubstantial to the ridiculous. Uh, I, 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 I um, will assume for purposes of my discussion here uh, what I very much expect to be the case, which is that the opinion that, that is issued will be essentially the same as the leaked draft. Now, as Ryan mentioned, um, overruling Roe uh, certainly isn't the end of the fight for life. It's really the beginning of an uh, important new phase. We have huge challenges ahead. In talking about the uh, le legal landscape of federal and state policy, I want to um, begin by clarifying what we mean when we talk about overruling Roe and Casey. Uh, Roe and Casey created a legal regime in which courts 
would bar any laws uh, that prohibited abortion before viability and uh, under the undue burden standard, a meaningless phrase that, that uh, Casey set forth, would subject all other regulations to this uh, judicial scrutiny in which judges basically could do whatever they wanted. Uh, what you had here uh, was the you know, overturning of the um, centuries-long tradition of protecting unborn life at the very time the 14th Amendment was adopted. States throughout the nation had, had uh, enacted abortion uh, laws uh, protecting unborn life from conception, uh, and that continued uh, after the enactment of the 14th Amendment. Now, what, what Dobbs would do, and it's really in some ways the most important part of the opinion I asked you to look at, it's so just a page right near the end, I think pages 65 to 66, is it explains that in lieu of the standard uh, that Roe and Casey imposed, you'd have deferential rational basis review. Now, what this means, as the court explains, is that the law regulating abortion is entitled to a strong presumption of validity and it must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests. So again, this is a very deferential standard, and the court, importantly, goes on to spell out what some of the legitimate state interests are that, um, that could be rationally served by laws. Uh, it explains these legitimate interests include respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development, in other words, from conception on, the protection of maternal health and safety, uh, the elimination of particularly gruesome or barbaric medical procedures, uh, and the preservation of the integrity of the medical profession, the mitigation of fetal pain, and the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. I think when you read uh, this list of legitimate state interests, combining it with a rational basis standard, I think basically everything that the pro-life movement uh, has proposed, all the laws that have been enacted in recent decades, uh, should easily survive rational basis review. Uh, indeed, uh, the rational basis review is so simple that uh, the Dobbs opinion spends a single paragraph uh, five sentences applying rational basis review to the Mississippi law at issue and uh, readily concludes that it passes. Now, what we are going to see uh, if Dobbs proceeds as it should is a shift in the judicial fight from the federal courts to the state courts. We've already seen this uh, happening. There are, uh, according to a report uh, by the Center for Reproductive Rights, 11 state Supreme Courts that have already invented some sort of state constitutional right to abortion. Uh, quite a few of these are in red states, including um, Alaska, Arizona, Florida, Iowa, Kansas, and Montana. Uh, again, you have these legal elites in these states that are much more prone to protect abortion. You have um, simple constitutional phrases like due process of law uh, that, that are um, abused by judges in these states to invent a state constitutional right to abortion. And one reason why uh, the pro-abortion forces have focused on red states is they know that in blue states they can get what they want through the, through the legislative process. They want, they're, they're particularly focused on red states in order to thwart the legislative process uh, in those states. Uh, the, the, perhaps the first big battle uh, in the aftermath of Dobbs will be a referendum in Kansas on August 2nd. 
A few years ago, the Kansas Supreme Court invented a state constitutional right to abortion. On August 2nd, the people of Kansas uh, will be voting on a referendum that says uh, that the matter of abortion is uh, restored to the political processes in Kansas. Have in mind, this, this referendum does not say that uh, what, what that policy shall be, but it fights the power grab uh, that, that the Kansas Supreme Court uh, uh, pulled off a few years ago. Something similar, I think, is going to happen in a, in a couple of years uh, in, in Iowa. So we have a tremendous opportunity uh, going forward uh, under the, deferen the deferential rational basis standard in uh, the, the, the draft ops opinion to uh, enact all sorts of good, good laws. It's going to be very important for pro-lifers to exercise uh, uh, prudence, uh, principled incrementalism, uh, not make uh, the perfect enemy of, of, the, of the good. We all know that, of course, we, our ultimate goal is the pr uh, protection of all uh, uh, unborn lives. Um, realistically, uh, in many states, that is going to be uh, impossible to attain in the short term. And we want, it's, it's going to be very important, especially going into the elections uh, in, in November, that we not uh, overreach. So there are red states in which quite a bit can be achieved. And I know um, Denise and Clark uh, will, will talk about some of that. There are other states in which there's, there's not much that's going to be done, and that's uh, frustrating. Uh, it's going to be uh, you know, a source of real uh, uh, disappointment to so many of us. But we need to uh, focus on uh, both the short game and the long game and make sure the short game uh, is advancing uh, the long game. Finally, on the courts, let me say that there are some issues that will return, uh, that, w that the federal courts will be dealing with. There'll be issues involving perhaps the dormant commerce clause, or you, have, you may have clashes of states where one state tries to, um, uh, you know, California, uh, for example, uh, has abortion tourism, and Texas may try to thwart that. And there may be some I issues here um, that for the Supreme Court to, to sort out. But all in all, um, we will have the uh, federal courts uh, exiting the field, uh, giving up the power grab that they um, uh, wrongly imposed 50 years ago, and letting uh, the American people work out this issue state by state, working hard to uh, persuade our neighbors and our fellow citizens to um, adopt policies that are just. So with that, I'll hand things over to Clark, I think. Well, I thought I would uh, see if the podium works, and it sounds like it does. Uh, welcome uh, to the great debate. Not just this panel, uh, not just this conference, but the conference is part of a long debate that's been going on for the, almost 50 years since Roe versus Wade about how to react to Roe versus Wade, how to overturn Roe versus Wade, and protect human life. And uh, this debate is going to go on for the next decade or two or more about how to react to Dobbs and uh, what to do in, in law and policy to protect human life uh, from conception uh, throughout our country. Um, and it's a good and important and essential debate. Public policy thrives because of debate. And so we shouldn't shy uh, from it, but welcome it. And uh, I expect that I'll be seeing lots of uh, uh, conferences and speeches and op-eds and law review articles. So come on in. The water's fine. 
but uh, a question I wanted to ask uh, in getting to kind of the nuts and bolts this morning is how did we get to Dobbs? We need to understand that uh, question and answer uh, because it has great reflections for what we do after Dobbs. I mean, the cause for life in the United States is the most dynamic and vibrant pro-life movement in the entire world. Um, and there are several reasons why, but federalism is a dominant reason. Federalism has been the essential ingredient that has brought us to Dobbs and uh, has increased legal protection for unborn human life since Roe versus Wade. I mean, compare uh, the experiences in parliamentary systems, Great Britain, Canada. They have rel relatively moribund pro-life movements, or at least considerably weaker pro-life movements that we have in the United States. Historically, look at the hurdles that William Wilberforce faced in Great Britain in his campaign against the slave trade. He'd introduce a resolution annually in January, February. It would be thrown out by a committee, and he'd have to wait an entire year until the next parliamentary session, and there were no uh, subordinate uh, you know, political constituencies or, or jurisdictions that could pr uh, promote the campaign against the slave trade. So in a, a centralized system, uh, it's easy to squelch alternatives to the status quo, whereas in a decentralized system, uh, it allows alternatives to arise and to be debated and enacted into law. Um, and, and federalism is a, a constitutional reality in our system. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hardwired into our system. Based on, on state sovereignty and the consent of the people, Federalism is consistent with morality and natural law. And indeed, it, it uh, implements the principle of subsidiarity. Uh, federalism promotes liberty uh, that allows alternatives to the status quo. And it promotes economic prosperity, which allows nonprofit and, and social and community organizations to be effective in the public policy arena. So don't think that centralized government is the best or even the most likely to create the best law. And um, finally, I want to uh, elaborate on the fact that federalism is effective. Uh, it can be summed up in one sentence over the last, uh, what we've done over the last 50 years, when the Supreme Court or the President or Congress was hostile or deadlocked, the cause for life went into the states. And they've achieved a lot. I count at least a dozen uh, accomplishments uh, by the states that have undermined Roe and increased legal protection for human life in the states. And I don't have time to, uh, Roger will be glad I'm not going to go into all those today, um, but I just want to emphasize several of them. It goes all the way back to the 1960s because the states held the ground against elites who were uh, working to legalize abortion. And at the time of Roe, despite a debate in virtually every state legislature in this country, by the time of Roe in January 73, 30 to 31 states um, retained their traditional prohibition against abortion except to save the life of the mother. Second, the states have kept Roe unsettled for nearly 50 years with test cases that raised new legal issues that challenged the court, that challenges the, uh, challenged the court's responses, uh, test cases have been necessary to keep Roe unsettled. Test cases resulted in uh, controversy and agitation and spurred uh, 
powerful dissents by Justices White and O'Connor and Rehnquist and Scalia and Thomas and have sowed confusion in the law that is now reflected in um, Justice Alito's draft uh, opinion. So Dobbs is the outcome of the strategy of these test cases. And of 33-plus abortion test cases uh, that have gotten uh, uh, to the merits in the Supreme Court, all but two have come from state laws. Third, uh, state laws have made abortion an election issue because bills introduced in the state uh, became an election issue in the next election. Fourth, um, state laws have created pro-life leadership in the states who, in many cases, went on to higher office. And the number of states with pro-life legislatures or pro-life working majorities has grown considerably since the 1980s. Fifth, uh, the state laws have helped to hold down the number of abortions. Since 1980, uh, state laws have helped to reduce the abortion rate by approximately 53%. Look at Michael New's uh, various analyses over the years. Sixth, the states have created uh, what Congress couldn't create, um, uh, a broad, uh, um, deeply rooted foundation for protecting human life year after year, state after state, through prenatal injury laws, wrongful death laws, fetal homicide laws. Why, since 1993, have we been fighting a Freedom of Choice Act, or a FOCA, which is now called the Women's Health Protection Act? because it was the only way for abortion advocates to overcome the power of federalism in the United States. Seventh, uh, state laws have created momentum with the number uh, in the growth of state laws year after year, legislative session after legislative session since 2010. And um, that has challenged the expectation that Roe would uh, remain the law of the land. And finally, um, state legislation has been critical for preparing the states for uh, the post-Dobbs through developing experience, uh, uh, expertise, and leadership among state legislators. If, if, uh, if we'd stayed out of the states, if we'd stayed out of state election and state policy since Roe versus Wade, because um, you know the perfect law couldn't be enacted after Roe versus Wade, um, we would be, the states would be ill-prepared for what happens after Dobbs. So despite the opposition of the media and elites and politicians and political parties, federalism since 1973 has enabled the people to support human life and express it in the law. And what the states have done, in fact, is more powerful than any public opinion polls in, in showing and expressing public sentiment. And while academics and elites uh, ridicule the notion of human life beginning at conception, 31 states today have a fetal homicide law that protects the unborn from conception. And virtually all those have been enacted in the face of Roe versus Wade since 1973. So federalism is the key to future success. And it would be, I would say, tragically counterproductive to seek some national solution to abortion or any life issue, really, that leaves out the states and the important role that the states have had. If you want a constitutional amendment, someday uh, we're going to have to secure 38 states. Thank you, and I look forward to the discussion.
Well, I just wanted to flesh out a little more specifically what's actually going to happen in the states. Um, this is an area of <clears throat> excuse me, great confusion in part because Americans don't understand what Roe actually said or did. So Americans don't understand the policy implications for potentially overturning Roe. Um, and then there's also some unknowns that are in the mix as well. But I thought we could talk about kind of the known unknowns and, and what might happen out of Dobbs. So I'm going to picture three buckets. Okay, we're going to have three buckets of state laws. And then we're going to talk about a couple of potential outcomes of Dobbs and how that is going to play out. So bucket one is going to be our, our pre-row laws that completely protected life from conception. There's about a dozen of these in the states. Also in that bucket is the, the conditional laws, sometimes called trigger laws, which will be activated to completely protect life from conception if and when row is overturned. Those are mostly historic laws that have been kind of around for a long time, but obviously either unenforceable or unenforced because they were enjoined. Bucket number two is some of the more modest protections for life, um, whether it be heartbeat, pain-capable, different gestational limits, discrimination protections that have been enacted more recently, but also unenforceable or unenforced and joined because of Casey and its um, you know, nonsensical arbitrary standard that will just call certain things undue burdens because they are substantial obstacles whatever that means. Uh, bucket three is going to be the, the future pro-life laws that we can enact in states. Okay, so outcome A from Dobbs is a complete overturning of Roe. In that instance, going to bucket one, we're gonna have a lot of laws that are now completely permissible. So these are the pre-Roe total protections that have been around a long time as well as the trigger laws that will be activated. A couple of things to look for there in the states that have these is that the conditional laws are written in different ways, so they're not all written equally. They sometimes have different mechanisms where the attorney general or the legislature has a certain role. There might be a, a time period, um, but as long as the, as some of them say that Roe has to be specifically stated as overturned in that wording in the, in the case, um, so those will not all play out equally. Some might take longer than others. Um, some that have been enjoined might take a little bit of extra legal work, um, which I'll talk about in a minute when we get to bucket two. So those are, there's about a dozen states that those will apply to, and we should probably expect to see that those will come into effect, you know, sooner than later through the proper channels. Bucket two is going to be all of those laws that we saw more recently, things like um, protections for babies with Down syndrome, protections against um, abortions that discriminate based on race or sex, um, protections for you know the heartbeat laws, the feel, the pain capable laws. Those, um, many of them, most of them had to be enjoined under under the mandate of Roe and Casey, and so. When those have been enjoined in federal court, and, and Catherine previewed this a little bit, um, there will be a mechanism for dissolving or lifting those federal injunctions on those laws. So there are a lot of states that have a lot of different versions or combinations of these. Some of them are just gestational limit waterfall type laws, like in Missouri, where it was a it was an eight week if that gets struck down, then a 10 week if that gets struck down, then a 12 week, 14 week, and so on. Um, the question to keep in mind about lifting these injunctions is who has standing? And so in 
if if it's in some states, it's just the attorney general or some states, uh, a state law will give the legislature standing to participate in these sorts of cases. Um, but depending on who's in those offices, it may not be immediately possible to take action on those laws in a particular state. And then the third bucket would be um, all of the future pro-life laws that we could now pass to protect life completely. Um, as you heard from Ed's presentation, this should be a, a basically anything. I mean, with all of the legitimate interests that there are in in unborn life, which, by the way, Roe and Casey said were important and legitimate interests that was actually recognized all along, um, that's that's more than sufficient. That alone is more than sufficient, uh, not to mention the, the risks to women that we know of, of death, infertility, hemorrhaging, all, all sorts of problems, um, setting aside the emotional and, and psychological increased um, addiction and suicide and so forth. Um, so that is, that's the landscape over a complete overturning of Roe. And I'll give you the, the less happy picture, um, but it's, it's, it's the most negative I'm even willing to discuss, which is that the court upholds the 15-week law um, but does not overturn Roe and Casey completely. Um, under that possibility, again, just this is my worst case scenario, there would have to be some sort of new standard articulated. So the court would have to either modify what it means by undue burden um, and or move move the line from viability to an arbitrary 15-week mark or, or some other mark that we don't know um, that would be, again, made up a new test. Under that, um, a bucket one is off the table, right? So any of those laws that the states have had on their books for a long, long time but haven't been able to use to actually protect their um, most vulnerable citizens would would still be impossible. Bucket two would be more open. So a lot of those more moderate protections, um, obviously anything around the 15-week mark, which is when you can now know the, the sex of your baby, um, certain disabilities can be tested for around that time, pain capability, those would be permissible, potentially, under that scenario, but something like a heartbeat very likely wouldn't be if, if the court is trying to draw some sort of line in the sand and, and find a middle ground. And then the third bucket of, of the options would be, um, well, it would generate a lot of litigation because a lot of states might try to just go with 15 weeks or whatever the maximum they think they can do without being dragged into court. But obviously, immediately, states are going to push for, well, why not 14? Why not 13? Why not 12? Because there just would be no justification for a 15-week limit um, rather than going for full protection, just like there was never a basis for Roe in the first place or the undue burden standard. I think that although a lot of people are talking about the legislative activity, and, and there will be a lot of that, as I hopefully you know, kind of previewed, a lot of it will be in the courts. So dissolving the injunctions, lifting the injunctions, there will be a lot of activity in the court because that's actually the quickest way to do it. Rather than waiting for a legislative session and trying to hash out all these details, the cleanest way is to get those laws that are already passed and enacted on the books um, back to being enforceable and enforced. Um, so that, I think, is a little bit underappreciated. Um, especially when a state now doesn't have maybe the attorney general, the governor, and the legislature all aligned to, to protect life, but maybe did in the past. I mean, they may have a really difficult time getting a good life um, law passed now. And um, 
And so all in all, I mean, this is going to be a, a very a fluid situation, but it's going to be critical to have policies also discussed that are protecting women, that are supporting women, that are, are channeling those resources to, uh, to the needs that are out there. And it's going to take a lot of conversations. Um, the, the reality is, like I said, people never supported Roe. A majority of people do not think abortion is, should be legal past the first trimester. And so those conversations, um, to, to minimize the, the, the ignorance um, or, and the denial that we've all been living under this veil of ignorance for you know, more than my entire lifetime is going to be very, very important, especially for pushback, and I'm sure we'll chat about this, but in some of the extreme states like New York and California, there's no way that a majority of people in that state actually think that a, a baby in the womb should be able to be killed for any reason whatsoever through all nine months of pregnancy. That's just not the case. And so we need to be knowledgeable and be ready to explain, um, for example, all of those legitimate reasons that we might see in a Supreme Court opinion and why that's so critical to uh, our public policy in a nation that is, is based on freedom and um, the right to life and liberty. I'll start with you, Ed. The left and abortion activists have been doxing Supreme Court justices, outing their home addresses and posting uh, in tweets that they know where their kids go to school for the justices. And you may not know because the media is underreporting it, but there was an actual assassination attempt on a sitting Supreme Court justice. What do you make of this phenomenon and what can the court do? What could law enforcement do to address these, these issues? Well, everything that has happened since the leak of the Alito draft uh, would vindicate the judgment of a liberal leaker about the, uh, the uh, possible benefits or disruption of, 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 uh, of such a leak. Uh, look, um, we have too much violence uh, on, uh, on both sides uh, in this country. Uh, we need to all condemn uh, violence and threats of violence, and we need to insist that the Department of Justice uh, be active and President Biden uh, be vocal uh, in condemning violence. You've had in, in recent weeks, I think some, I don't know, a couple dozen attacks on pregnancy counseling centers and the terrible threats by some crazy pro-abortion group uh, this is, these are, uh, these ta attacks are obviously a plain violation of local law, but they're also a violation of federal law, the, the so-called Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, which defines reproductive health um, broadly enough to include the services that pregnancy counseling centers provide. I have a great deal of admiration for Merrick Garland, but where is he on this? What is the Department of Justice doing? Uh, we, you know, we need to make sure that we, that, uh, we as a society that we squelch the violence and you know, think, if you think things are ugly now, they could get a lot uglier um, very quickly. Denise, you mentioned that some of the more radical pro-abortion states uh, will not respect life, even though much of their populace believes in life. What are some of the things these states can do to become something like abortion sanctuary states? Well, unfortunately, uh, 
they can certainly push funding and taxpayer funding and, and mandate that on their people to pay for these elective abortions. Um, it sounds like California's governor intends to, and I'm sure he'll have the backing of legislature, um, set up sort of some sort of tourist attraction where um, people are incentivized to come to California. Um, there's all kinds of ways that, that states can use their budget. Um, that's part of, unfortunately, that's, that's one flip side of federalism. That's why it's so important that the people actually know what's going on and understand it. Um, my hope is that Americans will look around and see the states that are protecting life and see how human life is flourishing there and see that positive um, you know, increase in the family and community and celebrate that and start to realize that abortion is unnecessary um, and certainly isn't, isn't a public good that, that the taxpayers' funds should be used to push towards. Um, there's probably other malicious ideas that I haven't even thought of yet, especially using, um, especially with the abortion drugs and, and the chemical abortions, um, the ways they may try to push that out. But for now, I think the best thing to do is, is to show that the, the states that are protecting life are, are where the people and the families are thriving and, and that it's quite possible for, for women to have happy, successful lives and be moms. I have my three-month-old right over there um, that my mom is holding, and here I am. And so I may be a little sleep-deprived, and hopefully everything that I said is coherent, um, um, but the truth is that everything that Roe and Casey said was always built on a lie, and so part of that is just the, us as people showing that that's the case. I, I always thought that bringing a baby on stage is just the undefeatable argument. Just, <laughs> you don't have to say anything. Just, uh, Clark, Denise mentioned chemical abortions and states will be ramping it up and funding it perhaps for other people coming from out of state. <clears throat> but we'll also expect there'll be massive mailing of these chemical poisons, you know, they're designed to end a child's life, to pro-life states. So what can those pro-life states do to stop that flood of, of chemical abortion? Well, uh, thankfully, the states uh, have been working over the past decade or more uh, to limit uh, chemical abortion in, in a number of ways, in the face, of course, of Roe and Casey and, and the federal courts. But um, they have sought to make clear that uh, there are real risks involved and uh, sought to uh, address those real risks by uh, a number of important health-related regulations. Um, uh, I believe states will be working on um, keeping uh, chemical abortions out of the states, but certainly it's also um, in, within Congress's power, expressly in the Constitution, to, to pass a federal law on that. And at the earliest possible opportunity, Congress should pass a federal law, uh, hopefully with the next president who would, who would sign it. Um, but uh, I don't think the states have yet, well, because of Roe and Casey, have not done enough yet, and, but I'm, I'm sure that they will be addressing it soon. And, uh, you know, I think one Im very important short-term thing that states have to do after Dobbs is enforce the laws that are on the books. And enforcement is something that's been impaired by the federal courts for decades, um, and state officials are going to be, uh, you know, in the crosshairs and, and in the spotlight to start enforcing laws. And um, that, in that includes and, and, and should they should prioritize. Um, regulations on chemical abortions. So Ed, picking up on that thread, say there is a state attorney general from Michigan, hypothetically speaking, 
who has announced that they will not enforce the pro-life laws on the books, or say there's a rogue prosecutor in a pro-life state that in their local jurisdiction refuses to defend unborn life? What, what can be done in those circumstances? Well, the situation uh, will be easier to address in a red state than in a, a blue or, or a purple state. But let's say, uh, and we saw this in, in Virginia recently, where the, um, uh, the county prosecutor in Fairfax County has said that he will not uh, enforce any abortion laws that, uh, that Virginia uh, would enact. Uh, look, you'll see this in Texas. Uh, the fact is that um, in red states, as in blue states, a vast majority of abortions are done in uh, heavily urban areas in which you have um, Democrats as, 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 as mayors and Democrats elected to these other offices. Uh, so one option, uh, first, first is the question, how much protection will this really give the abortion clinics and how much of it is just political, political posturing by uh, the local prosecutor. The, the um, abortion clinic uh, has to, um, a, a doctor in the, um, operating abortion clinic has to worry about uh, his continued licensing if he's violating state criminal law. Uh, he or she also has to worry about uh, a, a new uh, uh, prosecutor coming in, uh, the, the, uh, you know, within, within the statute of limitations and deciding, you know, to, to prosecute uh, these crimes. There's not, a, you know, formal immunity that can be granted by uh, a, an irresponsible prosecutor. But beyond that, there's a question of, okay, um, does a state enable uh, an attorney general to step in where a district attorney isn't doing his or her job? Uh, if current state law doesn't allow that, um, will uh, the state enact a law that ensures that that happens? There, there, there's lots of room, again, especially in red states, um, for that to take place. And there's also the very important role of private civil enforcement. Now, we saw private civil enforcement in the context of the Texas Heartbeat Act. Without getting too much into the weeds there, the primary role of the private civil enforcement provision there uh, was in conjunction with the denial of authority to state officers to enforce the law. To, uh, the whole, whole, the whole um, plan was to make sure that federal courts couldn't enjoin people uh, from enforcing the law, and that succeeded. Uh, in a post-Dobbs world, uh, there's no reason for a a state to forbid state officers from enforcing the law, but there's a very different reason for having these these private civil enforcement provisions, and that's to make sure uh, that that if the politicians aren't doing their jobs, um, there are other means of uh, uh, deterring uh, what the state has uh, determined to be a criminal. So I think you'll see uh, more and more states adopting uh, private civil enforcement provisions and, as I said before, provisions that um, authorize the state attorney general to step in if uh, a local prosecutor um, isn't, isn't doing the job. Clark, going back to the, the draft opinion, you were cited in that opinion. Your work on the history of abortion, uh, Justice Alito thought that was incredibly relevant because it exposed the true history. Could you give a, a brief summary of, of how your work could actually be impacting this final decision? Well, Abuse of Discretion, the book, um, the draft opinion cites, and of course it could fall onto the editorial uh, cutting floor uh, before the final. But um, That'll be the he, one change, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, it, uh, he cited it for the, or the draft cites it for the proposition that the viability standard was completely arbitrary. 
Uh, he, he's, um, the, the thrust of abuse of discretion is that the deliberations that led to Roe versus Wade were more arbitrary and capricious than we'd even been led, led to believe before. Um, viability was, was never briefed, it was never argued, it was not part of the Texas and Georgia statutes. Um, it wasn't urged upon the court. The, the way the court arrived at it is, after the second round of arguments in 1972, uh, when, when the word viability wasn't even mentioned once, the justices just started talking among themselves as to where to draw a line. And a couple of them prevailed upon Justice Blackmun to pick viability, and that's how we got it in the Constitution. Uh, which is ironic because, of course, as you know, the court in Casey said that viability was the essence, or the viability rule was the essence of Roe versus Wade. What a, a thin and, and fragile essence. So. Let's think about what next. Um, Denise, for the laws that are being proposed, my understanding is that this is pretty much a consensus of the pro-life movement, that it's going to be about going after the doctors. They're the bad actors and having compassion for the mothers in the tough circumstances. Um, what is your understanding of how that has been moving? And even in some of the more you know, pro-abortion states, how much traction are we getting in those? Yeah, well, I lay some blame at the feet of the FDA on this, um, which is that they have been continuing to take this deadly drug, which the only the only intentional use in this context is to end a healthy human life, um, and and have been lessening all the protections. So you know now the FDA has signaled they're going to lift the rims, which is something that. Uh, has only been placed on drugs that are especially dangerous, and that was when when the chemical abortion drugs finally did get on the market, after a lot of lobbying, it was still recognized that they were tremendously dangerous for a number of reasons and needed to have these special requirements so that the, the physicians or pharmacists would be licensed, um, you know, and, and it had to be gotten actually directly from a doctor who's examining the woman and so forth. Um, that has been weakening and, <clears throat> excuse me, Weakening and weakening to the point where uh, the doctor is almost going to be out of the picture if if a woman can just get it by mail off the internet without any sort of examination. Um, so, you know, Clark made me think of something, which is another law that I think states should be considering is requiring that in-person physician visit um, if they don't already. Uh, a re ultrasound requirement extremely important that a woman does not have an ectopic pregnancy when she's given these drugs and that she knows how far along she is. They're only, um, you know, they're only permitted for use up to 10 weeks. And if, if there's any sort of, you know, wiggle room on that, that can very easily cause all sorts of terrible problems, um, at a minimum, the, the need for a surgical abortion. So anyway, all of that to say, um, the requirements are loosening, but at this, uh, which is making a, a push more towards a discussion of, um, other ways to criminalize people who are aiding and abetting the process besides just the doctors. So anyone who is, say, engaging in something that might look like criminal solicitation of a woman for advertising, oh, come here to our place and, and get your, your medical abortion. Um, and one, one idea states have had is that, you know, it's almost, it's almost analogous, analogous to kidnapping, where um, if someone took your child out of state uh, that would be, you know, that state would have an interest in that and that would be a federal crime. Well, what about, what about a, a child in the womb who is solicited out of state 
by someone who is promoting drugs either illegally administered and you know prescribed or just that are illegal in that particular state, um, would that state have an action there? So these are some of the ideas that um, the states are considering. So this is a question for all of you. If Dobbs holds, is the Supreme Court going to be out of the abortion business? Well, as I indicated before, there um, you know, could well be some uh, cases arising, especially from the clash of states. Um, perhaps uh, if there's congressional legislation, perhaps cases involving the scope of Congress's power. So uh, it's, it's, it's too much to say that the court would be out of the business altogether, but uh, it would be out of it, you know, say 95 percent. Uh, and this matter would be um, re restored finally to, the, to our elected representatives, um, where, um, you know, for better or worse, and I have no illusions that I'm going to be 100 um, percent happy with the um, with the status quo that develops, that, that, that crystallizes um, over the next few years. But I, 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 ideally, this matter um, gets uh, worked out. We have um, things resolved, resolved while still subject to being revisited. So yes, we're not going to like the laws in New York and California, but over time, we'll have the opportunity to um, citizens in those states will have the opportunity to persuade their fellow citizens to enact more protective laws. And this will not involve you know, running to the Supreme Court. It will involve actually, actual democratic persuasion. And that's one of the strengths of the Alito uh, draft opinion is that uh, repeatedly he says that Roe and Casey are overturned and um, also um, explains why since there's no abortion right uh, in Anglo-American history, uh, there is no other clause of the Constitution in which an abortion right can be tucked. So it's very clear in that regard in, in trying to keep the court out of it and return it to the states as much as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's one important reason why a full-throated overturning of Roe and Casey is extremely important, besides the fact that they are just fundamentally flawed and never had any basis anyway. Um, but... Get to get the courts out of the business and to, to remove that stain over time of, of the judiciary where every time an abortion law was challenged, it was assumptions about the judge's beliefs and, and cherry-picking jurisdictions to get a certain outcome to try to bootstrap this horrible, deadly federal unconstitutional mandate. So I think it's a very, very good thing, um, and it's the only reason, it's the reason that only option A under my scenarios is, is okay. Well, it took 10 years from Brown versus Board of Education until we got the Civil Rights Act. So we had, uh, I don't foresee us being able to live in two Americas for another generation. Um, but this is a new beginning and a beautiful one if Dobbs hold and gone willing it will. I'd like to thank you all for attending and thank our panelists. Welcome back to the Life After Rose Symposium. Please welcome to stage Rachel Morrison of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Welcome everyone. It's my honor to moderate our panel on the reality of, the reality of abortion in 2022. We have three panelists. The first is Dr. Christina Francis, who is a board certified OBGYN who currently works in Northeastern Indiana as an OBGYN hospitalist. She is the immediate past chair of the board and new CEO-elect of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She is an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the research and education institute of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. 
She is a board member of the Indiana Right to Life and a physician member of the Abortion Pill Reversal Network. She will be addressing the medical impacts of abortion, but unfortunately it will be through proxy. Her flights got delayed last night and this morning, and so I'll be reading a copy of her remarks. Next up, we'll have Elizabeth Kirk to discuss why women do not need abortion. Elizabeth is an attorney and director of the Center for Law and the Human Person. She is a research associate and lecturer, all at the Catholic University of America Columbus School of Law. She is an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, where she serves as a legal policy expert with a special interest in adoption law and policy. In 2010, she helped found the Vita Institute, an intensive interdisciplinary training program for leaders in the national and international pro-life movement, which is held annually at the University of Notre Dame. Elizabeth formerly served as a consultant to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Pro-Life Committee under Archbishop Joseph Newman. Third, we will have Janine Maxson to discuss the resources available for pregnant women. She is an attorney, consultant, and nationally recognized speaker and human rights advocate. She currently serves as an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute and as the compliance officer for her plan, P-L-A-N in all caps, a project that facilitates collaboration between assistance providers and their communities to empower women and families through comprehensive medical, social, and material support. Janine previously served as the Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Counsel for Americans United for Life and as the General Counsel of CareNet. I'd like to invite our two panelists that are here to the stage, and then I will read Dr. Christina Francis's remarks. I would like to thank Rachel Morrison and all of the organizers of this very important event, and I am very sorry that I was not able to be there with you in person. I have tried very hard to get there, but the airlines seem to be conspiring against me. I am very thankful to Rachel that she has agreed to convey to you some of my thoughts. I recently did an interview for the Washington Post, and the journalist asked me how I thought my practice of OBGYN would change if it was overturned, if Dobbs was overturned or sorry, if Roe was overturned in Dobbs. I think I surprised her with my answer. I told her that for me, it really wouldn't change at all. In fact, it wouldn't for most OBGYNs. Why is that, you might ask? You're wondering, why is it that most OBGYNs don't do abortions as part of their normal practice? The answer is because abortion is not healthcare. There is not a single health benefit to elective abortion, and there are many potential risks. The organization that I represent, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, exists in part to scour the medical literature for the evidence that exists on the effect of abortion on women and children and convey this information to our members so that they can present an evidence-based support for their pro-life position. When we look at the complications that women experience from abortion, we can divide them into two broad categories. The first would be immediate complications that happen at the time of the abortion, up to a few days or weeks or two later. This would include bleeding, infection, incomplete abortion, or tissue retained in the uterus, damage to the uterus or the cervix, and anesthetic complications. It should be noted that chemical abortions carry a four times higher complication rate than surgical. We will discuss this in detail in a minute. The second category are long-term complications. 
These occur months to even years after the abortion. There are three main long-term complications that we see consistently in the literature. The first is preterm birth and future pregnancies. We see this especially after surgical abortions. However, those chemical abortions that have had to be completed surgically also have a significantly increased risk of preterm birth and future pregnancies. The preterm birth that we see is the concerning kind that happens prior to 32 weeks gestation. This link between abortion and preterm birth has been proven by more than 160 studies, and even the Institute of Medicine lists prior abortion as an immutable risk factor for preterm birth. This is especially significant in the U.S., as we already have an unacceptably high preterm birth rate, which leads to the high neonatal mortality rate. However, the medical establishment does not want to look at this as a way of reducing preterm birth. One particular patient of mine comes to mind. I saw her at about 18 weeks of pregnancy after she had had four or five previous losses at around 20 to 21 weeks before her babies could survive. When I looked back through her history, she had two surgical abortions prior to those losses. When I met her, her cervix was dilating and giving out despite having a circlage or a stitch placed in her cervix to try to hold her baby in. Unfortunately, she progressed to lose her baby at about 19 weeks. As I sat and cried with her, and she told me that she didn't know if she could go through losing another baby, I just had to wonder if whoever had done her abortion had warned her that this was a possibility. I would bet that they hadn't. Might she have changed her mind if they had? The next long-term complication that we see from abortions is an increased risk of breast cancer. It's important to note that not all abortions that cause an increased risk. However, abortions done prior to the first full-term births significantly increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. Similar to the risk of preterm birth, the more abortions a woman has had prior to her first full term, the higher risk of breast cancer. This link between abortion and increased risk of breast cancer has been seen in approximately 40 studies. Finally, we see a significant adverse impact on women's mental health after they have had an abortion. Again, this has been shown in nearly 50 studies. We see an increased risk of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicidal ideation and behavior. In fact, according to a large study done in Finland, women who had had abortions have a seven times increased risk of suicide, even when you compare to women with unplanned pregnancies who went on to carry to term. Overall, 20 to 30% of post-apartheid women will suffer from serious, prolonged, negative psychological consequences. Abortion is contributing to the crisis mental health that we, have, that we already have in the U.S., and yet women are being told that they should shout their abortions and be proud of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Women deserve better. In fact, abortion is the real war on women, and this war has entered a new phase. Actually, it's not so new, but it is definitely gaining steam and gaining in popularity. This new phrase, this new phase is chemical abortion. Women are told lies that it's easy. It's like a heavy period. It's as safe or safer than Tylenol. You don't need a doctor. You can do it in your own home. These are blatant lies, and the abortion industry knows it. In fact, chemical abortions pose not only a significant risk to the preborn lives that they end, but also to the women who experience them, and they turn their home into an abortion facility. Chemical abortion consists of two medications. 
The first is mifepristone, which blocks the action of progesterone, which is a key hormone in early pregnancy. This blockage leads to starvation of the developing embryo or fetus. The second drug is misoprostol, which induces uterine contractions and essentially induces labor. This leads to significant pain and very heavy bleeding as the woman passes the embryo or fetus along with the other pregnancy tissues. In fact, many times the woman will pass their baby and be, un and be able to see an intact baby. Some things that they were not prepared for. This adds more trauma to an already traumatic experience. Chemical abortion is approved in the U.S. up to 10 weeks gestation, but it is being marketed for use far beyond 10 weeks. As I said previously, the complication rate for chemical abortions are actually four times higher than surgical abortions. In fact, one in five women will experience an adverse event. If you look at the latest abortion numbers from 2020, that would amount to 100,000 women per year. The complications that they are experiencing include hemorrhage or heavy bleeding, infection, and retained tissue. Significant number of women will need a surgical completion of their abortion. All of these complications increase with increasing gestational age. Dr. Donna Harrison, our CEO, along with other Charlotte Lozier Institute researchers, have published several papers in the last two years looking at these complications. What they found is nothing short of frightening. The FDA system for collecting complications is not catching all adverse events. In fact, ever since 2016, the only complications that have to be reported are deaths. To date, we know that we know of 24 women who have died from complications from chemical abortions. Harrison and other researchers also found that less than 40% of complications are treated by the abortion provider. Instead, women are abandoned to their local emergency rooms to be cared for by physicians who have, have no idea if they're in medical uh, no idea of their medical history or what they've been given. One particularly troubling study looked at emergency room visits in a Medicaid population between 1999 and 2015. What they found was that ER visits of abortion complications steadily increased throughout the study. Have chemical abortions increased, uh, uh, chemical abortions have increased significantly. In fact, ER visits for chemical abortion complications increased by 500% over the study. This was all under very tightly controlled dispensing of these medications. Now that the REMS have been lifted and women don't have to see a physician in person prior to obtaining these medications, we know that these complications will only increase as women take these at all gestational ages, are not screened for life-threatening ectopic pregnancies, and are not screened adequately for their RH status. ACOG, the American College of OBGYNs, is in full-blown crisis mode, saying that women's health will suffer if Roe is overturned. And yet they oppose common-sense protections and support blatantly unsafe practices when it comes to abortion. They don't care about our patients when it comes to the issue of abortion. Women and their preborn children deserve better. They deserve support, compassion, excellent health care, and fully informed consent. APLOG and our members are striving to provide that. If you want more information, you can go to their website at applog.org. Thank you.
Okay, I was asked uh, to share with you today arguments made, I brought props, um, in an amicus brief uh, that we filed on behalf of pro-life feminist organizations and 240 pro-life professional professional women uh, and scholars in response to the argument that women need abortion for their economic and social well-being. So you can find this brief on the Supreme Court's website. It's chock full of uh, footnotes and resources and, and studies that you um, can can dig into more. Uh, so a couple quotes just to put uh, the importance of my remarks about this argument in context. First, I think you probably all heard uh, President Biden's uh, Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, uh, who testified to Congress uh, last week, I think, as follows. I believe that eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects on the economy and would set women back decades. A second quote, uh, this one from Kansas. Um, Ed Whalen mentioned uh, the situation there, which is this summer. Uh, Kansans will be voting on this abortion neutrality amendment to overturn their Supreme Court decision in which they found a natural right to abortion, which had been hiding all along in the 1859 state constitution. Uh, and modest as this amendment is, it's just simply a neutrality amendment, as Ed pointed out, abortion proponents claim that the sky is falling. So Kansas Governor Laura Kelly warned that passage of the amendment would put Kansas women, quote, back in the dark ages and would hurt the state's economy because uh, companies would think twice about coming there. So for supporters of legalized abortion, life after Roe looks really bleak and in fact maybe terrifying, right, for the for women. Um, And so I think that's an important reality for those of us who wish to engage, right, and maybe even persuade that we need to keep in mind that there is this uh, drumbeat that without access to abortion, uh, the consequences for women and their social and economic well-being will be devastating. This important, this argument was important, is important legally, um, because while due process and liberty were the legal basis for the right to abortion, the rhetorical justification in Roe uh, was harm to women. So in Roe, Justice Blackman stated that the detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. And in describing this apparent parent detriment, rather than focusing on the pregnancy, uh, he focused almost entirely on the harms or the burdens of parenthood. So he focused on the stigma of unwed motherhood, on the distress, quote, associated with the unwanted child, and the problem of bringing a child into a family unable to care for it. And of course, this sort of argument was then part of the justification in Casey for upholding the right to abortion um, because the court said that women rely, right, on the judicially created right to abortion. And they said, quote, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. So as it, just as a quick aside here, this rhetorical basis is what Justice Barrett was getting at when she asked the question in oral argument about safe haven laws and adoption. Many people criticized her, thinking it was insensitive for her to say, well, you can just drop your baby off at a fire department and it'll all be fine. But what she was referring to is this underlying legal argument that women need abortion to 
to be able to respond to the burdens of parenthood. And the argument would be if all 50 states have mechanisms in place, like safe haven laws, like adoption, in addition to the resources that we have to help her parent, um, can we still make the legal argument, right, that she needs abortion? So getting this argument right on the relationship between abortion access and women's social and economic well-being is important because it was um, so critical to justify the constitutional right itself. And even if Roe is overturned, engaging that argument remains important at the state level because this is the continued justification uh, and an argument for permissive state-level legislation as demonstrated by Governor Kelly's remarks. So in the leaked Dobbs draft opinion, Justice Alito, citing both our brief and the opponent distinguished economist's brief, that's what they call themselves, the distinguished economists, um, stated that the contending sides in this case make impassioned, this is Justice Alito, the contending sides in this case make impassioned and conflicting arguments about the effects of the abortion right on the lives of women. And the court said that assessing this sort of empirical evidence about intangible effects on society uh, is appropriate to legislative bodies and not to courts. So again, we lawyers uh, need sharp social scientists to to respond to uh, these studies arguing that women need abortion. So to to briefly summarize the arguments in our brief, we first pointed out that the court in Roe and the court in Casey and other uh, reported decisions which rely on this argument cite very little evidence, right, in support of these claims. So, for example, Justice Blackmun cited nothing to say that, uh, that there was this harm. And in the Casey court, they cited only one text in support of this reliance interest, And in that text, the author herself admits that, quote, abortion is the consequence, not the cause, of complex and mostly positive changes in young women's lives since 1960. So when we reviewed the empirical evidence, we found no causal link, no necessary connection between the availability of abortion and women's participation in society. Instead, what we saw are innumerable factors contributing to women's Um, social and economic equality, as well as the fact that legal reform and other opportunities for women were expanding well before Roe was even decided. Uh, Moreover, in recent decades, as abortion rates and ratios have declined and women's participation in the life of the nation continues to improve, uh, as indicated by various markers, that, again, reinforces the idea that there's no necessary link between abortion and women's flourishing. We also reviewed the leading series of studies upon which many of these claims about abortion and abortion regulations uh, and women's well-being are based, and that's known as the turnaway studies. And I, I, again, I have another prop. I brought the book here. So this is uh, a kind of compilation of all of the different studies uh, that um, are used to promote the idea that women need abortion. This study uh, is claims to be a longitudinal study based on uh, comparing women, outcomes for women who were turned away from an abortion clinic because they just exceeded the gestational limit uh, to outcomes for women who were able to obtain their desired abortion because they fell just under the gestational limit. Of course, they conclude that the group turned away fares worse economically and educationally. And we found these studies flawed for a variety of reasons, including the small sample size, so as few as 112 women, 
were analyzed, drawing massive societal conclusions based on the experience of 112 women. Uh, the fact that many of the turnaways, when the women turned away, actually ended up getting an abortion, uh, or went on if they if if they didn't get an sorry they got an abortion and then ended up having a child within one to three years. Um, and then also the lack of financial information about the women's circumstances in order to be able to judge whether they in fact fared more poorly economically. So there's a host of problems that we outline in our brief uh, compromising the significance of these conclusions. But this is the book that you're going to hear about and the studies that you're going to hear about going forward about how abortion is necessary for women. So we push back at this facile assertion that the data proves that women, that abortion causes women's flourishing. And and certainly um, that you can't also conclude that without abortion, right, if Roe's overturned, they would suffer. We also point out that the data may actually suggest the opposite, right? And this has been referred to by other speakers, that there might be some correlation between abortion and negative effects uh, for women. Finally, we made the normative point that the argument that women need abortion to participate doesn't necessarily takes the male model uh, of reproduction uh, for economic and social participation as as the norm, right? And that this lopsided view, and, and again, Erica Bakyaki was cited earlier, her, her work in this is really crucial, that this lopsided view has prevented meaningful accommodation of women, both in pregnancy and, and men and women in parenthood, uh, in the workplace. So abortion is an easy out, not only for the irresponsible man, right, but for society who doesn't want to build that safety net uh, that would help men and women welcome children. So just in closing, I think it is important to, to persuade others to recognize the fear that underlines the, our, our opponent's argument here, right? I mean, all of us can think of a story of a woman who, for whom an unexpected child was very difficult, right, and may have made her economic and, and pl- her plans uh, more challenging. And we acknowledge this by walking with women in these hard places, right? Um, but it's much more complicated. The data is much more complicated than that one narrative. Um, you know, we, we can also all think of a story in which an unexpected child was the occasion for great blessing in a woman's life. Maybe it gave her the incentive she needed to finish school or to make healthier choices in her relationships. Uh, you know, there's an old saying that every baby comes with a loaf of bread under its arm. So maybe the social scientists need to uh, chart the value of, of that loaf of bread. Um, and none of this, finally, is to even mention that none of us make important decisions based on economic factors alone, right? And so the prior question of whether the unborn child's life is worth protecting regardless of the incidental costs or benefits is always present, even if not explicitly uh, addressed. So in addition to being prepared after Roe to engage these economic and social science arguments, uh, we also need to recognize that the normative judgment about the policies and the choices that go into these policies has to be engaged as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for those comments, Elizabeth. I'm proud to say that I am one of those professional women that Elizabeth represented in her amicus brief before the Supreme Court, so thank you for that. I also want to thank the Heritage Foundation, Americans United for Life, and the Ethics and Public Policy Center for allowing me to speak today. 
My topic is on resources that will be available to women in a post-Roe America. I do just want to mention one thing. I know many people are wondering, where did your hair go, Janine? I am a six and a half year survivor of terminal brain cancer. And I only mention that because there are people here, I see friends, I see colleagues, I see former colleagues, I have family here, and I know there are many of them watching online that have encouraged me, helped me, and mostly prayed for me during my time where I was battling this disease. And because, especially because of your prayers, I really believe God has preserved my life for such a time as this, where we see this great moment. So thank you for that. So I want to start my remarks by telling you a story. And this is a story that I read years ago when I was the general counsel of CareNet. This is a true story. It was reported by ABC News. It's also a matter of public record. This is the story of Caitlin. And when I first read this, I thought Caitlin is pretty much what you would think of as a typical woman who is facing an abortion decision. Caitlin, in 2008, was 18 years old. She was single. She had not completed high school. She already had a child. She was unemployed. Her boyfriend, who is much older than her, was pressuring her to have an abortion. She said in this article to this reporter at ABC News from the beginning that she had second thoughts about having an abortion, but eventually she found herself in the Flint, Michigan clinic of the now notorious abortionist Abraham Hadari, and who was later found to be operating a clinic without a license, involved in the death of at least one woman and many other violations, such as improper handling of fetal remains. So Caitlin went to the abortion clinic, still having doubts, and on the abortion table changed her mind, and she claims that Dr. Harati forcibly aborted her baby against her will, even after she asked him to stop. So like happens to so many women, as many speakers have pointed out, a few weeks after this abortion, she had gotten to such a deep state of depression that it culminated in her trying to take her own life by driving her car over a cliff. The only thing that saved her life was a timely call from her mother, and so since that point, she had to deal with her depression. But that's, these are not like atypical stories that we hear. So the question is, how do we support women in Caitlin's position in a post-Roe America? And I'm happy to tell everyone here, which I don't think is a surprise, that there is no one more um, capable and more set up to do this than the pro-life movement itself. We have this huge safety net of pro-life providers within the country. In fact, as of November 20th, 2020, there were... Um, over 4,000 pregnancy help organizations across the United States. And these would consist of pregnancy help centers, adoption agencies, maternity homes, and also um, pro-life social service agencies. And we're growing in that too. So I first want to just talk about pregnancy centers. How many, let me pull the audience up. How many of you have worked at, volunteered, or supported your local pregnancy center? Wow, quite a few here. For those of you online, I always see that was about 90% of the crowd, and that's not surprising. So that's really great. Um, there are roughly 3,000 pregnancy centers across the United States set up and equipped to help these women in post-Roe America, compared to about 900 Planned Parenthoods. So that's really great news. And pregnancy centers in the United States um, in 2019 served 2 million clients with services at no cost to them, totaling 22 $266 million. 
Eight in 10 workers in a pregnancy center are volunteers, which is also no surprise. It's very community-based, and these people are not motivated by profit. They're mostly motivated by their faith and their passion to serve others. So that's a huge difference, and one thing that our sets us apart from others is that our movement is really based on the values that we hold and our passion to help women in this situation. And maternity homes are the longest-standing subset of pregnancy help organizations. They started in the late 1800s and kind of continued and got to be so popular that by 2008, the federal government, through U.S. Department of Health and Human Resources, set up a grant program to help out maternity group homes. And they're still growing. Today, there are 400 of them throughout the country. And I've heard of just three more opening up this just past week. And even with that, there are thousands of pro-life families that open their homes up to pregnant women in need and will host them throughout their pregnancy. And adoption is another great option that women will have in a post-Roe America. How many of you have a friend or family member who's adopted? And again, that's about, I want to say even more, like 90% of the crowd. I have both a family member and a friend who was adopted. And that doesn't surprise me because right now, one in 10 Americans in the United States are adopted. And that's roughly 33 million Americans when you look at our current population. Um, and so the adoption stigma, too, is really decreasing. There's 3,000 adoption agencies in the United States. Right now, for every child waiting place for adoption, there are 36 families waiting to adopt. So a woman in a post-Roe America is going to have lots of choices when deciding if she chooses to place her baby for adoption and deciding what couple she wants to place her child with. And I'll also add that um, like all these pregnancy help organizations are really um, either expanding their services or modifying their services to deal with the post-Roe America. One great example, I know the legal panel and Elizabeth mentioned, and actually Dr. Francis mentioned chemicals abortions. One thing that the pregnancy centers have done is um, create this abortion pill reversal network. So the abortion pill can be reversed safely if taken, if taken within, if the progesterone by progesterone, if taken within 48 hours of the first pill. And to date, this abortion pill reversal network has saved 3,000 babies. And this is fairly new. So it's a phenomenal. I was at an event where I saw one of these little babies um, who was saved. And you just look at that child and you think, that child was in the process, not like being thought of, in the process of having her life terminated. But because her mother Googled abortion pill reversal, got connected with the pregnancy help organization, she was able to get the help she needed to reverse that. Because many women, as soon as they take the first pill, they will immediately regret it. Like many women who have abortions sometimes immediately regret them. So that's an incredible thing that our pro-life movement is doing to help women. And um, Elizabeth mentioned safe haven laws. And that's very important because that's not exactly adoption, but it's another way that a woman can safely release a child to be raised when she can't do it herself. To date, there are 4,630 babies that have been saved through safe haven laws. And for pregnancy um, support organizations, I'm just going to read the laundry list that we've identified through the Her Plan Project at um, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. There's just so many, I can't talk about each one. But transportation ministries, food banks, material goods and baby supply distribution, housing, attorneys, addiction and suicide intervention, 
organizations that help women overcome situations involving intimate partner violence, rape, assault, sex trafficking, counseling for women and families, abortion recovery and healing, because it is important that we're not just there for her while she's considering the abortion, but we're there afterwards. So we are not in a movement that only cares about the baby. We do care about the women and the men involved. That's very important. We've been doing that for years. Disability support organizations, medical interventions for babies, perinatal hospice, pregnancy infant loss support, child care, health care for children, and parenting education. And I do want to um, describe something that I read just this past Monday. My good friend Jill Stanick, who may be listening, sent me an article that was in the International Business Times, and Planned Parenthood is also trying to build a network of Planned Parenthoods. And the title, with a different objective, the title of this article was Planned Parenthood Builds Staff Network to Help U.S. Women Navigate Abortion Hurdles. And I want you to listen closely as to how they describe their network. At the pro-life movement, we describe ours as a pro-life safety net, right? This is how their um, spokesperson, whose name is Angela Huntington, described their project. Quote, it's really a big spider web that's being built throughout the country. Take a moment and process spider webs. What do they do? They're built to catch flies, right? And the fly gets in there and they struggle, and as much as they struggle, they can't get out till they're finally exhausted, and then the spiders come in and devour them. What is a pro-life safety net? What is a pro-life safety net? I think of a pro-life safety net. I think of trapeze artists who are in these precarious situations, and if they fall, they land in the safety net, and the safety net may expand or you know, have some force on it but it prevents them from falling. So that's really what we do in the pro-life movement. It's just so amazing when you hear um, the pro-abortion movement using their own words, how they really call themselves out. It's like spider web versus safety net. Yeah, so um, um, what can you do? I'm going to leave you with free three Vs, and some of these have already been hit on. Vote your values, and this is important because even um, when I say this, both in the federal and the state level, as mentioned, a lot of the work's going to be in the states, but we cannot ignore the federal level because there are attempts to federalize a so-called right to abortion, as we've seen in the Women's Protection, so-called Women's Protection Act, and um, other um, pieces of le potential legislation. In fact, thank you to another friend who's watching online, Larry Gadbaugh, who sent me an article um, Joe Biden was actually on Jimmy Kimmel live bragging about how he can use his federal powers to increase abortion in the United States if Roe is reversed. Now, lest you criticize me for my taste in television, I do not watch Jimmy Kimmel. I only read the article. But I'm tempted to go back and watch this interview. He bragged about you know, how they have 640 million acres of federal land and that he could potentially use executive orders to fund abortions or rent that property to abortionists there. So our work on the federal level is not done. There's definitely things we need to do. So that's where voting becomes so important. And then volunteering, and this was already hit on by Ryan Anderson. Like there, you can, if you can fold baby clothes, if you can go on Amazon and order a box of diapers and send it to your local pregnancy health center, you can do something to help out and be a part of this pro-life safety net that we've created for women in a post-Roe America. If you're an attorney, a medical professional, a mental health professional, there is a need for you in any of those categories that I, I listed off. Just call your local pregnancy help organization, and even if you can't volunteer, say, could you put me on your referral list? Because, you know, I do want to serve women who are in this situation of post America. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Janine. Uh, so my first question is for you, Elizabeth. You talked about how a lot of the justification for Roe and Casey was the harm to women and having to raise a child. I think many women of my generation and often um, maybe the younger generations view the harm not just of raising a child, but the harm of having to be pregnant or go through the childbirth process. And we see this claim of forced pregnancy. How should we think about that and how should we respond to those claims? Yeah, that you're right. That is, I think, uh, the way that uh, the view is articulated, that women are being forced to be pregnant by pro-life laws. I mean, I think the first thing is just to simply say, like, pro-life laws don't force women to be pregnant, right? I mean, what they are is animated by a view of the human person uh, that a pregnant woman, right, um, has certain duties and obligations to her child that exist, right? Um, Ryan spoke, uh, you know, really, I think, um, movingly this morning about the nature of the child and, and this view of forced pregnancy, which views the child as aggressor, completely ignores the nature of the child, but also, I think, ignores the nature of the woman, right, who is not a isolated, autonomous self with no obligations to anyone but her own self, uh, but rather is in relationship with others, including with her unborn child. Um, in no other area of family law do we overlook this, right? I mean, the, the idea that parents owe duties, mother and father owe duties to their children, is one of the foundational principles of family law. And when parents fall down on the job, the law steps in to either make them do it or do it for them. So this is not unusual in family law. It's, an, in fact, an outlier. And so I think what pro-life laws do is they recognize that women do have these duties uh, of care and, and to protect the child. And, and in the context of adoption, which is, again, where it came up for in Justice Barrett's remarks, uh, I think placing the child for adoption is a way that a mother who, for whatever reason, is unable or unwilling to parent, um, that she can exercise the duties of motherhood, right? Choosing life for your child and finding a family for it, that's being a good mother. And so this is a way that she can fulfill those duties and obligations of motherhood, uh, but then in a way that respects her own nature and the nature of her child. That's great. And Janine, you talked about ways individuals can support women in crisis pregnancies. Um, we've seen recently, unfortunately, a lot of violence towards pro-life pregnancy centers, fire bombings, broken windows, graffiti statements, uh, threats. Uh, if abortion's not safe, neither are you. Are there any practical ways that individuals can support these pregnancy centers as they're trying to support these women? Well, let me just comment on the violence first. I mean, it's not just at pregnancy centers. You see it happening to the Supreme Court justices, which was already discussed, but as I said, volunteering, and I want to mention one thing that I missed in my remarks because I was feeling a little rushed. What Caitlin said, another thing Caitlin said to the reporter was, when she's making this decision, she kept asking everyone she knows, what should I do? And they all told her, you, you're too young, you need to have an abortion. And she said to the reporter, what I really wanted to hear was, we'll help you out. And this has been mentioned by other people, speakers, previously. I think one thing that's simple, even if you don't have the time to volunteer, if you don't have the financial resources to give, I think everyone has the ability to listen. And if you come across someone in that situation, find ways to help them out. Because as, as Frederica Matthews Green said, no woman wants an abortion like she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion as an animal caught in a trap trying to gnaw off its own leg. So if we can, you know, empower them and encourage them 
and continue to be that pro-life safety net and whatever role that you can play, even if it's just one-on-one -on -one with a pregnant woman who's facing that decision, I think can be very helpful. And I'll also comment, just take a few minutes, I have quarterly calls um, with the several, like a dozen, like really high-level leaders of pregnancy centers in local areas. And the last one we had was just two days ago. And I was so impressed with them because one of them actually had three centers within his network that were vandalized. And every single director on that call knew of a center that had been vandalized. So we talked about that. And I was so impressed when they said, you know, we're not going to live in fear. You know, we're going to continue to do this. So they are being smart. Like some of them have had to install bulletproof windows, security cameras, hire security guards, and take other measures. But they are so dedicated to this that they are going to continue. And that's why so many centers, even during the COVID crisis, stayed open because they really refuse to live in fear. That's a great encouragement. So as we're wrapping up, I'd like to hear from each of you one thing that you think that we can do as a pro-life movement, either legislatively or culturally, outside of protecting the unborn by prohibiting the abortion procedure itself, um, but one thing that we can do uh, to create a culture of life. Volunteer. I'm going to say more than one word. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, I, so I would say, you know, because this is very close to my heart, I would say to talk more about the role that adoption can play mm -hmm. in the pro-life movement. Um, Janine mentioned the stigma. There is and still remains a very um, powerful stigma against the choice of adoption for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are natural, some of which are um, caused by misperceptions. But I think the more that we can do to help women think of this as a meaningful choice, right now for every one child, one infant placed for adoption, 50 are aborted. So just moving the needle a little bit on that number would make a tremendous difference. And I think the more that we can do to help women see it as a meaningful option, uh, the better. Let me piggyback on that for one second. Adoption rates before Roe were actually relatively high. They plummeted after Roe passed. So I have a lot of hope that when Roe's reversed, they'll go back up. And I think it's great that there's so many American families waiting for adoption to fill that gap for women. Well, thank you both for your remarks. Uh, we have come to the end of our time. I'd like to invite Jay Richards up to give a concluding statement. But if you could join me in thanking our two panelists. Well, that was terrific. I just want to thank all of you, many of you online, and those of you that worked through the security phalanx to be here with us in person, the Heritage Foundation this morning. Um, I think we all feel we're at a, a historic moment in which we hope our country moves in a much better direction uh, with respect to the, uh, unborn human life. And so I uh, invite those of you in person here to join us uh, for the next few minutes in the Allison Foyer for lunch. Thanks for joining us.